0: Namaste, yogis and friends. I'm Keno McGregor.
1: And I'm Tim Feldman, and we would like to welcome you to Miami Life Center's podcast. <laughs> Maybe I'll just start with saying welcome to you all. Yes. Yeah, so um, the idea with this talk today and for the coming eight weeks is that, you know, when, how many of you practice yoga? Oh everybody. <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, so when you go to your local yoga teacher, your yoga your local yoga shala, and then we talk about yoga as this big spiritual thing and the next thing you do is your teacher only talks about where you put your legs. You know, are you putting them behind your head, are you putting them up here, are you putting them underneath here and stuff like that? So Sometimes um, the practice of yoga becomes so focused on the body and the idea is that we are more than the body that we want to like somewhat surpass the body Um, and that the whole asana practice the whole postural practice of hatha yoga is in the attempt to uh, begin to experience ourselves and begin to clean our senses up so we can begin yeah. to uh, understand and experience reality in a more clear light. Um, so we thought, and it's the same here in our yoga studio, we talk about, you know, Patanjali and the Gita and all that kind of stuff, but most of the time we just ask you to come in and sweat a lot on mat mm-hmm. in there. So we thought maybe it would be interesting this summer to begin to bring a little bit more focus on what actually goes into that practice and um, we have um, an asana is part of eight pillars of yoga which uh, we call the ashtanga yoga so ashtanga means eight and anka means limb or pillow or leg or something like that so where um, uh, asana is just one of those eight. So we call, could call it Igaanga, Anga, which one would mean one-limbed yoga and then we could just practice yoga, and which is often what's going on in, uh, in the West. But we really, by the end of the day, would much rather uh, incorporate um, all eight limbs uh, of yoga. So the first one of the uh, limbs, maybe you know already, is YAMAS, <coughs> and I'm going to talk about that in a moment, so I won't go so much into that. But basically it means uh, some kind of restraint, some kind of observances that we take um, uh, on a social basis and of how we live with other people in the attempt to live peacefully and in harmony with other people. And after that comes the yamas, which is personal observances about some um, actions that we take to make sure that internally we function well and that we are uh, living wholesome lives, something like that. And then um, after that comes asana. And asana is the attempt, is a, a tool with which we can begin to clean ourselves up, purify ourselves, as we say in yoga. So the uh, yamas and the yamas naturally begins to grow in us. After that comes um, pranayama, which is also such a practice, which is a, another tapas, we call it a tapas, a discipline. And asana is one type of tapas and pranayama is another type of ta- tapas, another type of discipline. So the asana practice would be one that is a little more simple, a little bit more tangible, but also one that is a little bit less efficient. And pr- Pranayama is uh, breathing exercises, is <laughs> an example of another type of discipline which is more subtle, more difficult, requires more commitment and more time but by the end of the day is a sharper tool, something that we can get further on with. After these limbs comes Pratihara. Pratihara means to withdraw the senses, to move our senses away from all the interesting things out there like South Beach and Ocean Drive <laughs> and, um, you know, all the Bentleys that drives around, you know, and Whole Foods' new buffet, you know, all that <laughs> cool stuff. All the people with very little clothes on that's walking around here, you know, starting to be a little bit less interested in that and starting to move the, our interest, starting to move our focus and our passion um, into something else which is more internal beginning to find less support within ourselves for these desires that goes outwards and begin to cultivate the desires within ourselves that turns our senses a little bit more in towards looking at what's going on inside, both uh, mentally, emotionally and spiritually. And when these five limbs are practiced well, then we say, then we come to the internal three last limbs of the uh, eight limb path, which is Tarana, tiana, and Samadhi. And Tarana means concentration. So, when there is a discipline, when there is an ethical uh, relationship with other people, a peaceful relationship with other people, when we are starting to take on observances, so we can live in peace with ourselves also. Um, and when, that, uh, when we are beginning to establish a, uh, a living where we are less concerned with what other people think of us, and all the desires on the outside, then concentration can start to happen. When all that is together, then we can begin to focus our mind on one thing. Before that, it's very difficult. We get distracted all the time. So then we in the first um, of the last uh, internal limbs, which is called Tarana. and Tarana means just that concentration, how to hold the mind in one place from one moment to the next moment, to the next moment, to the next moment, without losing the object of concentration. So if I can hold my mind on this bottle of water now, and still now, and still now, we call that concentration. If I have my concentration on this bottle of water now, but now on the phone, and now on your t-shirt, now this is not possible to learn anything if I have that kind of mind. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Then suddenly I'm just like everywhere at all times. But to be able to have that kind of mind, I need to be a little bit less interested in all that stuff out there. I need to be interested in what happens between me and the object. Yeah. When that starts to work, when that concentration starts to be possible for my, for me, when I start to be able to hold my mind in one place from one moment to the to the to the other, then we have the possibility to begin to find deeper levels of concentration. So we become we start to not only uh, not only do like uh, active concentration on an object, but we start to kind of get a little bit immersed in that object. We get so interested in it that it becomes such an absorption of the moment. So we begin to forget ourselves. That state we call Tiana, the absorbed state. And sometimes in the West we call that meditation. Also, after that, then there is a moment. But in Dhyana I'm still very clear between me being absorbed in this uh, this object. So there's still a difference between me and the object in my experience. Does it make sense? Mm -hmm. So then there is a state after that. And that's when I forget myself. Then when there is no more differentiation between the object and me. Where the duality of reality um, starts to um, dissolve, and I become one with my object of choice. That's a little mystical experience, as you, as you can hear. But the basic idea uh, stems from that we have a bunch of applications running inside our, you know, smart device here, <laughs> and one of these applications is an application that defines that I am me. And you are not me. You are someone else than me. This is not me. This is me. This is my phone. This is my water. This is not my water. That is not my phone. So there is an application in me. There is a program that runs and tells me all the time what is what I am and what belongs to me and what I am not and what doesn't belong to me. Imagine you take that application out then I would drink this water for instance and I would steal your phone because I wouldn't know the difference but because I have this um, idea of identity, I can function in this world without this identity, without this ego I cannot function in this world, it would be a mess Um, someone would put me in the lunar bin very very quickly (laughs) so, but on a deeper state of existence, we do not need that application, it's good for nothing and it keeps us isolated from reality and from everything else. So there is a place in the meditative state where we begin, where it's possible that this application of I-ness dissolves and disappears. And when that happens, there's peace with everything. Because there is no difference between one and the other, therefore there is no friction. Therefore there is no conflict. When we get to that state, then we say we are in the state of yoga called samadhi, and that um, is what we're going for. And then there's several states of samadhi, but we won't go into that. So that's the eight limbs. Uh, that's the eight limbs. That the, the eightfold path uh, that's set out by Patanjali. And uh, Patabi Joyce, he has um, borrowed that name. Everything needs a name. Everything you do, everything needs a name. So he has borrowed that name as an indication of what he would like his yoga to propose and to cultivate in his uh, students. Um, Yeah? Any questions so far? Anything you want to say? No? All right, (coughs) so I'll try to talk a little bit. I haven't made entirely too many notes here. I think I have a speech here for two hours. I promise I will not make two hours. (laughs) I'll try to cut it down a little bit.
2: Um,
1: So yeah, so the theme of the day is uh, yamas. And um, we just talked a little bit how they fit into the basic path that Patanjali set forward. And if I just may spend a little bit, a few more uh, words on that before we actually go into the yamas. So, um, we have an authority in yoga that's called Patanjali, and he lived about 1800 years ago. As a matter of fact, they didn't know if it was one person or a school or a whole thing there, historically, that we don't need to go into. But, so, uh, Sri Patanjali wrote a book, it's called Yoga Sutras, and that book, his teachings, is considered the authority on yoga. So if you are in doubt about what yoga is, read that book, you will know everything.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, at least in your head. Now, there's a second authority on yoga, and that would be um, Krishna talking to Arjuna in the book called the Bhagavad Gita. And there's, a little, there's some little changes, like similarity and uh, opposites in the two uh, kinds of teachings. In general, you can see it as the Gita is a much kinder way of yoga, and the Yoga Sutras is like, like the mathematicians' type of yoga for the renounce, for the renunciation. Um, today we will talk about it a little bit from, primarily from Patanjali, because Patanjali is the one who sets forth the eight-limbed path as an attempt for us to um, uh, to uh, leave the state of pain and suffering that we are living within. So the base paradigm of yoga is that um, we are not living in joy, that we are not living in um, a peaceful, that we're not living peaceful lives, that we're not living peacefully and joyfully with each other and with ourselves, but that (coughs) we are uh, more living in a state of um, conflict and friction and pain that leads us to a constant... (coughs) running with uh, suffering. And the idea is that um, many things are are painful and makes us suffer. Like if we fall down and hit our knee, that makes us suffer. Um, But even um, events that are seemingly positive has suffering in the end. Like for instance, I fall every morning, I fall in love with um, Patricia. And every afternoon, and she smiles very much so I get so happy. But every afternoon she smiles also to somebody else. So instantly I get really jealous and I get like all kind of trouble like that. So that initial like moment of pleasure that I feel there in meeting um, this other human being, very quickly has the potential to turn around to just be pure pain if it is not reciprocated. Does that make sense? Or, I love chocolate cake, so I eat five kilos,
3: yeah? So
1: the first bite is pure divine, but the second, and also maybe the second and the third bite. From
2: from there,
1: some problems start to happen, and after the five kg of chocolate cake, I start to have trouble doing anything for the rest of the day. So the idea is that, um, that even the in the in innate um, events that we consider positive, pain is there. Pain is there and often the result of it. Yeah. So <clears throat> what, um, what uh, Patanjali sets out to do is to try to suggest um, a paradigm where we minimize our pain, where we begin to uh, live by uh, a paradigm where pain is not constantly produced and relived and common at us. Yeah? Because the idea is that it's not necessary. We do not need to meet all this pain. There is a place where um, we can live uh, more peacefully basically with ourselves and with other people. But to get to that, we need to... Um, that place is called Chitta Prasadana, which means, Chitta means mind, and Prasad means peacefulness, so, and Dana means to give. So that we need to live in Chitta Prasadana, we need to live in a peaceful state of mind, a state of mind where peace uh, happens. But to get to that place, um, we live in that place because, um, Oh, we don't want to get into that today, it takes too long. But what we want to do is to get into the Chitta prasadana we need to find Chitta Ashuti. And ashuddhi means purification or cleansing. So to get to that state of Chitta prasadana, we need to begin to clean up our act. We need to begin to, first of all, um, uh, clean up our senses our eyes, our ears, um, our uh, ability to taste and hear and smell and uh, how we sense and all that. The reason is this, according to yoga, our senses are clogged up. We cannot use them the way they are supposed to use. So we go around in a haze where our five senses are kind of in a haze. So we don't taste what we taste, we don't see what we see, everything is kept away from us. So that means that what we see is no longer reality. And because of that, one of the reasons, because of that, we begin to live in a state of suffering because we're constantly in conflict with reality. Making sense? So do you need to believe this? Absolutely not. Does Patanjali believe this? Absolutely so. Are you interested in what yoga actually is about? Well, this is what the paradigm actually is. Today's little introduction. If you want to go further into that, you know there's lots of books that, that uh, you can read. So my job today is to do that. It's just to present you what the paradigm is about. I'm not trying to sell you anything, yeah? <laughs> <Okay. clears throat> um, so let's see. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to clean out these senses. And by the way, the mind is considered the sixth sense in yoga, the mind, uh, because it is, um, the, the mind is what is observing and understanding and in contact with what goes on with all the stimuli that we get inside. How we react to all that. That's what the mind is. So the mind also needs to be cleaned up because the mind has all these dirty spots in there. For instance, <clears throat> it's got, you know, I get angry, I get greedy, I get full of desires, there's things that I want, there's things that I don't want, I get jealous, I get envious, there's all these things in there. So those are considered um, seeds that we all have, no matter how long time you've been doing your asana practice, no matter how long time you've been living, we still have those seeds. But we're trying to clean them up and we're trying to get so conscious about them so they don't constantly get in our way every time we meet that same situation again I get angry or I get envy so I get something something Yeah. So we're trying to become um, so clean in our mind and in our senses so we can live in ways where all our inefficient patterns doesn't get in our way yeah? So yoga by the, at the end of it is trying to re-pattern us so our mind and our body and our speech and all that and that we no longer keep grabbing on to inefficient actions and inefficient thoughts and inefficient uh, patterning in general um, uh, that takes us away from living happy, non-friction, joyful lives. Yeah. Okay. Let's see what else I wrote down down here. Um, yeah. Because when we live in that state, <clears throat> we are we lose our individual will. We lose our ability to choose for ourselves. We become slaves to our desires. We become slaves to the thoughts that goes on in our mind. We got become slaves to all that and as long as we are living in that state paternity says well if you are a slave you are not free so as long as you live in that state you are not free So the whole paradigm is to move us from suffering to liberation to a state where we have a freedom to choose what we want in our life rather than just react spontaneously or even before spontaneously just like Just like there's no conscious choice of our reaction (coughs) patterns, we see chocolate cake, we eat. We see Patricia, we (laughs) jump on top of her. (laughs) You know, know, and so forth. Yeah. So we're trying to get out of that kind, that kind of, um, of living. How are you doing? Okay. Great. Okay. (laughs) Thanks, (laughs) man. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah, it's just like a lot of information, right? It's like, Whoa, what do you mean I'm a slave? What do you mean I'm not free? What do you mean I'm clocked up? You know what I mean? That's kind of where we come from. Okay. Um, so, but what Patanjali says is that there is something underneath that. There's another person inside, underneath all these not so noble features <coughs> that uh, that we all have. And we want to try to get in touch with that guy. We want to get in and in touch with that person that is a much more noble person, that is a much more wise person, much more intelligent person, much more um, uh, one that has just aptitudes in body and mind and heart uh, to much further degree than the one that we usually identify ourselves with. And for that, uh, Patanjali he proposes the eightfold path, the Ashtanga Yoga um, methodology to of moving us from suffering and into uh, moksha, into liberation. Yeah? So <clears throat> that path is about cleaning and that and as you know cleaning is not fun.
2: <laughs> but, so,
1: if you go home and clean, you clean, and afterwards it's super nice. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, if you are a really noble person, you can get into a um, positive state of mind while you clean. Oh, have you heard about that? <laughs> so, <clears throat> um, and we are of course doing it because when the house is clean, when our teeth is clean, when our clothes is clean, when our body is clean, it feels awesome after, and it feels like we've taken some burden off. So we are uh, going into that. Now, the reason I'm talking about that is not only of often so much fun is because this Eightfold Path is called the Path of Taking It Easy. No, the Path of Effort. Yeah? So to go on this path, to move ourselves out of the rock and into the light, that is considered effortful. You must be doing something. You cannot just sit at home eating chocolate cake and wait for it to happen. It's not going to happen. Yeah. So that's not completely true. The ER instances, like every fifth million year, yeah. something, someone just happened to hit somebody all by themselves with no <laughs> effort at all. But for the rest of us, we kind of need to do a little bit of work. They say, yoga says, it's possible to hit enlightenment, it's possible to hit that place of freedom and that liberation without all this effort. just doesn't happen very often, (laughs) yeah? So um, if you want to take the chance that it's going to be you, then you can just sit at home and eat chocolate cake. (laughs) That's all fine. But if you're not quite sure that it's going to be you that win that lottery, then there's something you can do. And if you want to do something about it, then that's where he sets out on the Eightfold Path, on the Ashtanga Yoga Path. Yeah? Okay. Right. <clears throat> so, Yamas means rules, means restraints, means restriction, means something that you choose to do, and very much something that you choose not to do. So it's something about manners, and something about holding ourselves back. And the idea is that if we don't, society as a whole or just our relationships to other people is gonna get completely messed up. And as a matter of fact, it's not gonna even be possible to have any relationship with anybody for very long. Um, So, and it's about training ourselves cultivating within ourselves a seed that where we want to act in these particular ways. But that comes little by little. That doesn't come from the beginning and this is why we say it's restraints. Slowly we begin to see the benefits of taking these restraints and then motivation builds and then it gets easier and easier and easier, and easier uh, to do it. But at first it's it probably feels like, wow, why can I do this, oh, I would like to do this, and we're going to have impulses that want to take us in the opposite uh, direction, not all the time, but uh, but sometimes. Um, okay, so there are five yamas, there's five restraints, five restrictions, and uh, they are called, in Sanskrit, they're called uh, Ahimsa, Satya, uh, Asteya, Paramacharya, and Aparikaha. So that's a list, that's five different principles and um, the first principle uh, on this list Ahimsa is the most important. The first word here Ahimsa means non-violence or not to harm anybody or to do good. Um, in I think uh, what's his name, Dalai Lama, he called it loving kindness. Yeah. The idea is that there must we must start from a place where we, as human beings, don't hurt each other. We must start from a place where I don't kill you first time I see you. <laughs> if I do that, it's all finished. Yeah. There's no more that can happen after that. So if we can first agree, okay, you will not kill me, I will not kill you, then now we can start to do any, do something. It can be horrible, it can be awesome, but if at least we can just stay alive for a little bit, then we can get a little bit of something done. Does that make sense? So that's the beginning. Now that's of course the grossest level of that. <clears throat> Underneath that is also like that I will, um, by my action, live in a way that will not be hurtful to any living, conscious, sentient being. In these days we can go forward, further even and say the environment, I will live in a way that has a minimal impact on the whole world, on the environment. So I will not drive a Homer, I will drive a Toyota Yaris, Oh, Prius it's called. Something like that. That's even that we are going into like ahimsa towards water environment. way. Mm-hmm. I will recycle my um, plastic bottles. That's also a little good, right? Next one is I will not use plastic bottles. Mm-hmm. But that's always another level. But um, so ahimsa, we often talk about it in relation to um, uh, other living sentient uh, beings. So. Um, for instance, in yoga, one of the things that's very important in yoga is that the way we feed ourselves. That because I'm hungry, I will not kill you. But it's like, oh, you look delicious. I'm going to try to eat you. Yeah? So that happens between human beings, but also between human beings and other living uh, creatures, such as animals. So we say vegetarian is important. The first step is, don't kill anybody because you're hungry. You don't need to. That's chocolate cake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and other such things where you don't need to um, to be violent uh, to do that um, so this uh, himsa means uh, to harm and to hurt and ah himsa means to not do that um, so this is the highest vow this is the highest consciousness according to uh, this is the highest level of relating to anybody. This uh, Ahimsa Principle is very important. Um, and that has to be by action, by word, and by thought, ideally. Yeah? Um, if we live like that, it brings happiness to everyone. Because everyone can live peacefully, because I'm not out to get anybody. I'm not out to try to in any way harm, hurt, or cheat in Make sense? Very very nice principle. Um, Now there is an exception and that is, um, scriptures say that there are moments where we are allowed to do actions that is seemingly hurtful. (coughs) And it is very logical, for instance, if I'm a surgeon and you broke your leg or something, then I'm gonna need to have to cut open. I'm gonna have to stick a knife in you and cut your flesh open to get the two bones together and then I'm going to have to put nails in you and then I have to close you up again and put you in a cast that doesn't feel comfortable for a long time. Now but that is all in the intention of bettering for you, of healing and health, Does that make sense? So that would be such an exception. There's not a lot of those exceptions. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Is this where the teachings on what's become known as idiot
1: compassion come from? I'm not familiar with the word. I know idiot and compassion, but I don't know the compassion.
3: <laughs> so, um, you know what compassion is, of course. And then idiot compassion is when we're actually serving ourselves when we think we're being service to someone else. So, as an example, your five-year-old is hungry, wants yeah. M&Ms, it's 6 p.m. right before dinner. Yeah. The compassion would be giving them him or her M&Ms. Mm-hmm. True compassion would be giving carrots. Mm-hmm. might be a little bit of a struggle there, but that's yeah. what they really need, not yeah. just what they want. So it's giving them what they, they want, what they need, yeah. or say differently. Yeah, I understand. Someone, huh? I understand. It's holding people accountable.
1: Yeah, and it's also like, by the end of the day, to give a kid a bunch of chemicals disguised in chocolate is probably not very healthy for him. Right. So, that would in principle not be a him That would be hurtful to him. If he gets it now and then, you know, oh, it's okay, right? But maybe not at 5 o'clock right before dinner. Like maybe it's better to find a better uh, time to do that. So, this would like is a good example of what um, is um, just running around corners with yourself and that, that person. It is much better idea, as you say, to give him carrots. Alright, let's see. Um. Oh. Also, another example of um, where it's okay uh, to do an act which is seemingly hurtful is the yoga teacher pushing on your back to try to help you get deeper into the asana right so your hamstrings are only this long your, your yoga teacher would like them to be this long so before that happens you know he can come over and help you a little bit you know with pushing very sternly on your back every day 6 a.m. for a long time until your hamstrings are as long as he wants them to be
3: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Why?
1: Because by the end of the day, we think that you're going to like live a more joyful, free life with your hamstrings at this yeah. <laughs> So That's also okay. Or <coughs>
2: or, the other uh, or the other way around. Or not There's pushing at all. Or the wants you to push them and, and you're seeing that it's not beneficial to the student. Yes. And then you restrain
0: and... Yes. The student is upset because they absolutely.
1: want you to. Now we're getting into kind of like intra, so, yeah. intricate psychological right. Um, <laughs> interrelating, right? But yes, right. Um, absolutely. I want to bring one more up. <clears throat> also, the teacher not only pushing you but scolding you. Yes. Student, <laughs> oh, bad student, you didn't do your homework. Mm-hmm. No, two mm-hmm. plus two is not five; mm-hmm. it is four. Go home, study again. That would also not be. Himsa. That would be ahimsa, yeah. that is to be buried, <laughs> does that make sense? But usually would say shouting at other people, eh, we should probably not do that so much. Yeah, know. But, <clears throat> okay, Especially here in Florida where there is concealed gun, you know,
2: <laughs>
1: okay, so that is the basic idea of ahimsa, are you with me? Yeah? <clears throat> okay. So, the next one in line is Satya. And Satya means um, honesty or truthfulness. And um, Indian scripture says that uh, that a person obtains everything by honesty. So, uh, if you want to get things done, you must be accountable, you must be fair, you must be honest, you must speak the truth. If you don't speak the truth, no one can count on you, and very quickly, you will be in a position where no one will count on you. Yeah. So <clears throat> that's the idea, that if right after you and I decided not to kill each other at first sight, then we also have to make a second pact. And that is, if I tell you I'm not going to kill you, I'm not going to kill you. Yeah. So that means now you can turn your back to me before that you could not, so that means now you can trust me now you, you believe that what I say is what I do and if we don't live by that rule what we say is what we do, what we think is what we say, what we say is what we do, if we don't live by that everything is off between us and our and the people that we in contact with nothing can get done, we cannot Go into, uh, we cannot progress in evolution without that. Does it making sense? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and usually, when we don't do that, it's because there is an incl- in inclination to say something which is different than we think, in the attempt to get something that we want. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So we're trying to cut in right there. So <clears throat> when If you look at that sentence, that means that there's something that I want. If I say the truth, I might not get it. So, But if I go like this, then I might get it. So that is all based on me wanting something particular that I don't want to risk not getting. Does make sense? So there is like a lot of stuff going on, there is me wanting as my desire. So this is why in yoga we say desire is the root of all evil. Something that I want, I can't get it, I get angry, I manipulate, I lie, everything starts from desire. When we have desire, there will be, according to scripture, there will, when there's, where there is desire, there will be anger, because we don't always get what we want. Where there is anger, there is loss of cognitive ability. Where there is loss of cognitive ability, there is madness. Yeah, now we are mad. Now we cannot take sound decisions. So, where there is desire, there is madness. Yeah. So when we're madness, everything is lost. So the idea, according to yoga, is that you cannot get mad. You cannot be living in this like lunatic, you know, state of mind. That that we get from being angry, or jealous, or something like that. That stems from desire. That stems from and gripping and greed. So we need to eradicate greed and desire. Yeah, because it's the seed that starts the whole negative process up.
3: Sorry to mm. have any questions. Mm-hmm. Um, this actually came up with a coaching client today. Mm-hmm. And so I taught something fairly similar to what you just said. And he asked me, so what about motivation? Mm-hmm. Because without a goal, there's motivation. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you my response, but it's not important. Mm-hmm. I'd I'm love to hear what your response is.
1: Yeah. So I see. So you were like coupling motivation with desire. that's something that I want.
3: Well, he was saying that. If yes. It's yes.
1: Right. I think, as far as I can see, it depends on if you are willing to risk not getting. That was what he said. Yeah. So um, if you are willing to take a chance on it, I mean, like there's a there's a desire rising. They rise all the time. But if you set your mind on, I must have it. You know, like. If you go in to buy that car and you wanna pay fifteen thousand dollars for it and it's a twenty-five thousand dollar car, then imagine what you have to get through to get it for that amount of money. Does you know that make sense? Absolutely. so there's the a process to rather
3: than outcome. Focus yes. on the process, what's happening right now, in this moment, mm. as opposed to something in the future mm. and a,
1: a goal just mm. focusing right now. Right now. Mm. Good. <coughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Um, so now, so here's the problem. So my wife, she comes up, she buys some new dress. She says to me, "How does this look on me?"
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I really don't think it looks so good. What am I gonna do? Uh, uh. So <laughs> uh, yes, we know what the answer is, right? <laughs> but according to yoga, <clears throat> so. <laughs> Right, I must be truthful. Must speak honesty. But is there anything that overrides that? Being hurtful, being hurtful. Being hurtful. Right. Kindness. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So kindness comes first, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. truthfulness comes after. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> <So that laughs> it's <laughs> a <laughs> difficult uh, um, place to navigate, mm-hmm. right? And we need to navigate it every day. You know, you come and say hello to me, I've never seen you before. You say, hi, Tim, so good to see you. I say, oh, it's nice so nice to see you. You know, I'm so pleased to see you again. And So like we're constantly in this place where we need to find very wise and skilled ways to be truthful, not dishonest, but kind, and compassionate and not hurt other people. Yeah. Can I,
2: yeah. Guess, um, in the 12th steps of the Alcoholics, Alcoholics Anonymous, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, there is a step where well, you have to ask for forgiveness to people who you have harmed in the past. Yeah. And uh, they say that you have to restrain yourself uh, from asking for forgiveness if that hurts, that yes. person. Mm. So it uh, mm. also,
1: so it's like yeah. like, it's set on the top of what you were saying. Hmm. Good one. Okay. <clears throat> All right, let's go on. So that's the idea of a himset being the overall most important, being the field upon which everything else grows out, okay. grows out of, and therefore is the, the, the more significant the high ground always to go after. Do not be hurtful, whatever you do. honesty, truthfulness comes right after. Satya comes right after. Right after that comes asteya. Asteya means don't steal. Not stealing is important. So of course it means that You know, this looks really nice. Try to look over there, we have something. (laughs) So, that is, of course, the most um, uh, simple way of stealing. So, we're not supposed to do that. Yeah? Because then you can't trust me again. Yeah, now maybe you trust that I don't kill you, but like I'm gonna take all your belongings. You know, that doesn't work. But that is in, in action, that is also in word. So that means, for instance, I am supposed to sit and talk up here today. So if you want to tell some great stories from your childhood right now, that would be stealing my moment. Does that make sense? And it would, in this case, be stealing from everybody. Because the contract here is clear, I'm supposed to talk, that means I can't talk, then the rules are off. Something like that. So <clears throat> it would mean that to kind of take someone else's space in a oh what is the classic one you know you cannot outshine the bride, is that <laughs> the bride? you cannot outshine the bride so you go to the wedding you cannot wear white right and that's like a whole set of rules <laughs> like that right so that would be stealing <clears throat> so yeah you cannot do yeah and. Then, on a more subtle level, we shouldn't even have it going on in the brain, in our mind, in the way that we think about things. <clears throat> That's a tough one. And that is like a res- like that would definitely be a restraint, right? Mm. But um, hopefully, by cultivating the seeds from which the yamas they sprout from, we can begin to less and less and less begin to be hurtful. Um, untr- untrustworthy and stealing of oh, in other people's lives. Yeah. Okay. Now you're gonna like the next one. So the next one is called Brahmacharya. Have you heard about it? A bit? <laughs> so that's the fourth one. So Brahmacharya is usually um, translated to celibacy. So okay. you must. Take celibacy if you want to do yoga. <laughs> so for everyone that comes into my Life Center, you have written a voucher. <laughs> <laughs> and this voucher says, I will be celibate for as long as I practice at my Life Center. Yeah.
3: <laughs>
1: so now let's talk a little bit about what the heck that means. <clears throat> so Brahma means reality. Brahma means like the universe and beyond, everything that exists. And charya means that someone that is engaged in that. So Brahma is all, also often considered um, uh, like a, like God or beyond God. It is what it's all about. So if you live in Brahma Charya, that means you are engaged in what it's all about, in the deeper meaning of things. Yeah, you are now. You put your mind in Brahma. You put your mind into the divine, and you live in that. Now, such a person that lives from that kind of um, paradigm, he will automatically begin to be less interested in having hot sex with everybody that he sees on South Beach all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Does that make sense? Like slowly there's going to be some kind of pulling Back of that, it starts to be slightly less interesting to live that life of the flesh. Yeah? Um, so, by the end of the day, it means that. So, when we look at it like this, Brahmacharya is no longer the cause but the effect of the way that we live. And again, that has to do with how we cultivate our lives, how we choose to go about things what we engage ourselves in, what we allow ourselves to get fired up about all the time. Um, now, in a more <clears throat> um, contemporary me- um, way of looking at this, uh, I think you can, and it's often like uh, brahmacharya, in the, in the way it's presented here, is, often has to do with our sexual conduct. And from classic Shastra, from classic yogic scripture, it is about that you do not have sex. But that is for the recluse, that is for the sannyasin, that is for the Bodhisattva that goes away in a cave and lives that kind of life. For someone like us that are, as we say in yoga, householders, we function in the world, there's a different kind of brahmacharya. (coughs) Like, you are allowed to have sex. You are allowed to have sex with your husband or with your wife, even 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 according to your exhorter. There's something called the Mahavratam, the great vow. The great vow is what the recluse takes. I will no longer have sex. I will only focus on the spirit of the body and not the flesh of the body. Then there's the Anuvratam, which Anu means Adam. So. Maha means great or or huge. And Anu means atomic. So that is the atomic vow. It's very (laughs) tiny. (laughs) That uh, smaller vow is what the householder takes. So he says, I will not have uh, sex with my neighbor's wife or my neighbor's dog or anything (laughs) like that. (laughs) I will only have sex with my own wife, my own husband. Does that make sense? And if you take that into classic India, that also means you will only have sex with your wife for proliferation, is that what it's called? Oh. Procreation. procreation. Procreation, yes. To have kids. <clears throat> and if you read the Yoga there's even more funny restrictions there. Go read that. That's a good lie. <laughs> but, um, but if you take that idea, that is, of course, rules ethical rules, moral moral rules built on a particular time in a particular society if you move that into our contemporary society personally, and this is on my account this is not what scripture says I would say that ethical sexual conduct in our part of the world might have more to do with consensual agreement about sexual acts but that is the most liberal interpretation that you will get, yeah? So you can have sex with all the boys and girls from South Beach if you want, if they want. And if they don't want, then you can. And if you don't want, also then you don't need. But, yeah? Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. So, but that's on my account. I'm just like throwing it out there as a possibility. That's all. It's not scripture. Okay. (laughs) Finally, oh, I should say that according to scripture here, it says that by living in brahmacharya in sexual uh, celibacy, you will be retaining your vital forces and one gets special powers. (laughs) <laughs> One gets very strong and energetic, maybe also a little crazy.
2: <laughs>
1: Alright, so the last yama is called Aparigraha, and Aparigraha uh, means um, not to be greedy, not to be hoarding, not to be possessive. And it comes a little bit back to your first uh, question here today. So. And it also means that that we shouldn't be taking um, gifts just because they're given. So there is a place where there's a right time and place to be uh, receive a gift. And just because you get the gift doesn't mean that you should take it. For instance, if you're a politician and you're offered <laughs> to go to the Cayman Islands, for three mm-hmm. weeks, on some that's medical some firm's account, yeah. <laughs> that's probably one gift that you shouldn't be taking. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, It has a lot to this idea that we talk about as non-attachment. And it has to do with that we allow ourselves to create a little space between what we want and what we do our desires, our needs, and so forth, that we, they will come up. So, <coughs> for instance, at the moment, this phone is so slow, because Apple has put some bug in it, So, because they want me to buy a new one. So, it is... Um, Monica, she just mentioned earlier today, she said, how can you function with that? And <coughs> I'm not sure, I'm trying to be very yogic about this phone. So, uh, but... Um, my instant desire is to go out and buy an iPhone X, so iPhone 10, because that would solve all my uh, neurotic problems. I'm sure. <laughs> but I'm trying to put a little bit distance between this, you know, desire to have a super fast phone, and um, then this phone. <laughs> uh, in between, uh, uh, just because by the end of the day, my need is not so essential. Yeah. Basically, the, the application that is the slowest on this phone is Instagram. <laughs> it's true. So it's like I have to click Instagram. and go, <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh,
1: oh, there I am. You know. So it's be, it takes some time to watch pictures of myself in small shorts.
2: <laughs>
1: but you know I can live without that so and in the same way you know when we have whatever desire is that we have that we have come up then we are able to just distance us, ourselves a little bit from that desire so we don't become a slave to that desire because Patanjali says that when we are slave to our desire it will end in misery yeah like money is great but if you try to hold on to the money too much, then it just becomes nasty. I've never tried that, but <laughs> <laughs> not yet. I hope it's going to come one day. But <clears throat> um, so, uh, what I've heard. Yeah? OK. Um, so there are some implications in this also. So there is a difference between ethical um, Uh, actions and legal actions and here is an example from my uh, professor, my teacher uh, that I study um, philosophy with in India so he said if you live in a village and um, are farmers and everyone is growing rice, he is from India and you by the end of the season you buy the rice for the appropriate price Let's say it's one dollar a kilo or a kg as they call it <coughs> in India. And then and one dollar would be like about fifty rupees. So let's call fifty rupees for one kg. And you buy everybody's rice, and it's a fair price, <coughs> but you buy every last grain of rice. You buy it all. Then you put it in your house, and then <coughs> by middle of winter, no one has rice anymore. And now you sell it for 500 rupees for one kg. That is legal to do, it's called capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. But that is legal to do, but that is not ethical. So that is, that kind of, and that's just an example of how legal and ethical is two different sizes, okay? Okay, so last thing, so those are the five uh, yamas, and according to Patanjali, there's something called Mahabritam. And it goes like this: Jati Deshakara Samyana Bachinaha Samapama Mahabratam. Which means Jati Deshakara means no matter the place or the circumstance or the time. This um, uh, vow, this is the great vow that you will never deviate from these rules and these restraints So that is for the recluse. Yeah, so it means it doesn't ma- matter who you are, it doesn't matter the circumstance, it doesn't matter, yeah, but you know, I just didn't have any money, and um, if I just got 500 rupees, then, you know, I could send them to my mom, she lives in Bombay, you know, that doesn't count, like, you cannot do that. Um, <clears throat> so no matter who you are, like, what family you're born into, if you're rich or poor, if you're a politician, if you are... An artist, if you're whatever you are, you, there's things you cannot do. These things you cannot violate. These rules. Um, <clears throat> doesn't matter this, uh, the circumstance, uh, and so forth. Now, this is the Mahavratam for the recluse. For the rest of us, we take the Anubratam. So that means, please try not to.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, do your best not to do this. Know that. When you engage yourself in violating the Yamas, you will, by the end of the day, create misery for yourself. It will not come out to your benefit, even if you get the Mercedes Benz for $15,000. By the end of the day, it's not going to work out to your benefit. <laughs> Okay, Um, I think I will rest my case with this. I hope you got a little bit of idea about what the Yamas are. And again, you can see this is some sizable forces that we are asking you to uh, incorporate in your life. Now, and we will, uh, maybe, um, I don't know if uh, Emilia will talk about that when she talks about asana. But the idea is that we need some kind of place where we can practice getting in touch with all these forces of um, the opposite of uh, Ahimsa and Satya and Asteya and Brahmacharya and aparigraha, where we can get in touch, in touch with the seeds that challenges those notions we can get in touch with that and that we can start to cultivate a bettering and a healing and a soothing of that and that place is your practice that is why we call the practice tapas that's why we call it the action that can lead to positive transformation and this is why we're not just practicing because it's fun yeah and because my belly gets flat and uh, I'm doing weird stuff, like in handstands I can put on Instagram. This is a place we go to cultivate deep purification of our mind, of our body, of our senses, of our soul,
3: something
1: like that. Can you cleanse the soul? Yeah, that's what practice is about. Okay. It is now 17 minutes past uh, seven. And I thought I would be talking for half an hour. (laughs) But uh, I didn't.
3: Um,
1: Is there any questions before we go home? This might be today a question.
3: Mm -hmm. I was just curious, having studied Buddhism and and Vaidana. Can you help me understand where uh, the Yoga Sutras fits in with all of that chronologically and how it all developed? Because I've never been to India, so I don't know anything about the, the interrelations
1: Yeah, so my historic recollection might fall to me a little bit. So Buddha, he lived about 2,500 years ago, and uh, he's a historic figure. He was there. He was a reformist. He came into India at a place at a time where the Brahmins, they were sitting on top of the power and they were the advisories to the king. And there was a huge monarchy and there was many kingdoms in uh, in India. So we had the aristocracy and the Brahmins that was in control of society. And according to them, you could only study these yogic scriptures and this liberation if you were a Brahmin or if you're an aristocrat, because then you can pay. So at this time, um, my understanding is, and I might, might be wrong, but that's where Buddha, he came out and he said, that is not the case. Liberation is for everybody. Everyone can purify themselves. Everyone can lead more happy lives. But we need to enter a situation, uh, 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 a pact between us which is more healthy and in the in buddhism they also have the eightfold path and it is very much like what we got here with uh, it so at that time yoga already existed yoga um, comes out the as a matter of fact like yoga is a um, lakshina word which means a loose word that you can use in many different ways so you can talk about yoga as being the state of no suffering, Samadhi. That is like the most technical definition. You can also talk about yoga as being a place of where goodness happens in general. Or you can talk about yoga, for instance, as the basis of all life. So there's different ways of you know, working with that uh, word. So for instance, in the Vedas, you would say that they are built on yoga. It's all about yoga and how things uh, how things work in the society. So the information was already there. And like five thousand years <laughs> from from now, right? So yeah. twenty five hundred years before
3: Buddha is right.
1: Well, you know, they say the Vedas are beginningless. Right. Because it's not like the information like someone came up. Oh it's not like someone invented the wheel. It's like the information is universal and um, surpasses time. It is just that someone has been ordained with that thought, with like putting it into thought, like it exists. It becomes thought through one person. He speaks it out. That doesn't mean that that's when it stops. It just means that now the word has been ordered. Makes sense? Now So. And then uh, during this time with the Buddha, there was a lot of conversation, a lot of debate between the Brahmins who were opposing um, his, uh, his teachings. And the Brahmins is the Vedantins that you are referring to when you say Advaita, Advaita Vedanta. Mm-hmm. As, and so Vedanta is, uh, Veda is the scriptures and Anta means after, so Vedanta means after the Vedas and that's why the Upanishads comes in, maybe you heard about Upanishads? Mm-hmm. So <clears> that is knowledge that is very much based on the Vedas and the Upanishads uh, together. Um, and these guys, they are called the Vedantins, they come from Vedanta. And there's two kinds, there is uh, uh, the Advaita and the Dvaita Vedantins. So there is the Vedantins that believes that everything is one and there is the Vedantins that believe that um, a duality is a fact; both uh, is uh, is there. So they were very much arguing with Buddha, <clears throat> and this guy Shankara, he's a Vedantin. He's one of the most famous one, and his claim to fame is that he ch- chased the Buddha out of India. <laughs> 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 so we have Buddha sitting over there, by the way, also. But um, so. By their debate that he won the argumentation and that the southern India particularly they took to his teachings and not to his teachings. And in the north of India and beyond they took to his teachings more and his teachings less. So I can say, yeah. Did I answer your question?
3: Uh, <laughs> so so when we think about yoga on the full
1: path as opposed to... Oh, Patanjali. What does Patanjali fit in? Exactly. Yes. So Patanjali, he comes later. So Patanjali, he is uh, a guy who comes in and says, wow, look at all this yoga information. That's so confusing. Let me put it into a little leaflet that everyone can understand and practice. So he comes in to create a methodology and uh, drawing upon all the yogic traditions. Okay. And then he writes this book called the Yoga Sutras that has four chapters. Chapter number one, Smadipada, what is yoga? Uh, chapter number two, Saranapada, how do you practice it? Chapter number three, Vipudi Pada, um, what are the benefits? Chapter number four, Kailalya Pada, um, where does it all lead to? So that is what he's. Um, so basically, he took what everybody
3: else had done and created a little handbook. Yep. Got it. That's his Bruce Lee. Yes, Bruce Lee yoga. And Bruce Lee yoga. yoga. Yes. yes, and it's not particularly, say, with or against, if you will, with, say, the Vedantins
1: or Buddhism. It's very much just drawing on tree. Very much not. Except Buddhism, he he, arguments against the Buddha, and the the fourth um, chapter in the Yoga Sutras is often considered a refu- refuting, refuting? Yeah. refutation of the Buddhist um, idea uh, of where our leads to. Okay. But we are in very esoteric knowledge and all the way up to here they agree very much. But Buddha didn't believe in a God and <clears throat> the, the, in the Danda, there is a God yeah. and in uh, Patanjali there is a God if you want. He, so the yogic Darshana, the yogi view is very pragmatic, very practical. It is trying, it is taking all the different information, looking at it under a looking glass, and saying what seems to work. And he comes out at the other end and says there are two paths. There's the path of surrender, which is surrender yourself to God. And this is where it says one out of a million or, five, or one out of five million just like elevates by himself like Jesus or the Buddha or something like that. And then the rest of us, we have to walk the path of effort. So, so, um, so therefore, uh, Patanjali is considered a theistic uh, philosophy because it operates with a Godhead, the possibility of a Godhead.
2: Uh, it is also said that they don't know yet if um, Patanjali was a person or a yes. group of people yes. or a school that uh, yeah. like, uh, elaborated the system. Yes. And uh, the sutras. Sutra means um, thread. Mm-hmm. So it's because of the way it was it was taught, it was very clear, very concise. Um, so 84,000.
3: Yeah, <laughs> okay, exactly.
2: <laughs>
1: and
2: so the, the teachers are like,
1: very concise in 169 sutras. 96. 96. 96. Mm. <laughs> 96. Yeah. Mm. 100. Same numbers, just
2: okay. spoke them yes. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry, um, I have a quick question. So I know that asana is the third of the eight limbs, and yeah. it's yama's and niyama's converse. So yeah. technically, are you supposed to master the yamas and the niyamas before you begin
1: your asana practice? No. You, no? Okay. no, so <clears throat> the yamas and yamas is kind of what it's all about. So but so what we are trying to do is we are trying to get out, to wrap our head and our existence around those, and for that we need a tool and modality to be able to do that. That's where asana and comes in. So we use the asana to begin to clean ourselves up so we can begin to have these noble principles begin to surface within us. And without that tool, it is considered pretty much impossible to live by the yamas and the Niyamas. Just a question
3: on the, I think it's the first, on nonviolence and how um, how they view um, protection, self protection, more specifically. Because um, yeah. I mean, you take the, the one extreme of well, the, the Christian view, is uh, turned out the cheek. Yeah. Uh, and various, I'm sure, various religions will take yeah. all the way along, you know. Yeah. Uh, different interpretations of that.
1: So Good question. What do you do if someone comes to harm you? Um, I think this is where you have the Mahavritam and the Anubritam. So if you are a full Sannyasin, you have taken full vows on this, you will not raise your hand, even if people come to hurt you. But if you live by the householder's game, there is are um, <coughs> moments where you can probably argue that it's ethically acceptable to defend yourself. or. If you are, for instance, the greatest warrior in the world and you are put in place to protect the good kingdom and you are attacked, then which is the story of Krishna and Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita. And he has that question, exactly, so if you're interested in that question, the Gita is a good book for you.
3: That's <laughs> actually one of, yeah, it's, it's That view versus something like... Um, uh, even going further east to um, Aikido, mm-hmm. which takes a very um, a nice look at, at that sort of problem in itself. So it's just do you know what they say? Aikido? Yeah. yeah. Oh, um, so sure. it's how do, you, um, how do you defend yourself in the most compassionate way, so you're not actually... Uh, usually the interpretation there is that if you're coming to harm me, you're coming to violate my boundaries, mm-hmm. I use that as, as an excuse to violate your boundaries in mm-hmm. return. Where actually it's how do I still respect your boundaries, but take your energy and use it against you. And move it back to yourself. And, and just to put you down, to pacify you. Mm. So you're not, the way i going to think of it is, imagine if you're coming to attack me, holding my baby. Mm-hmm. I, hurting you would hurt me baby. How do I get you down without hurting right. that child? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then it becomes you know, a lot mm. more complicated. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. very
1: curious. Hmm. Did I answer somewhat? A little bit. Yeah, yeah, no, it's the it's, end. Okay. Yeah. Where it is. No, it is like those are sort the of dilemmas of living out here in society. If you live in a cave in a forest far away, two thousand years ago, where there was very very few people around, that would probably not happen very often. Maybe there would be a tiger that would come. Then you would have a similar situation that you've know. <laughs> the, 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 the pacifist and the warrior, on your three examples that you suggested, they're they're part of uh, the same. No,
3: the pacifist is with the warrior in the same group.
1: No. Uh, is that right the not? warrior can be. A pacifist. Do you mean so that the can warrior example. can be a pacifist if he works in the name of good? So what no. you mean? So. You had three, uh, three examples, right? Did I? I believe it was a pacifist. Yeah. About uh, and oh case. yes, you had like you have the recluse that says, "I will not do anything, no matter what's right. being done to me." Yeah. Also, there's a recluse. So That's there would, a, that would appear. Yeah. That would be the full Mahabritam, you know, Sinyasin so that a, has a renounced the world. Different Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's just, yes, yes. Yes.
2: Also, oh, can I say something? Yes. Um, in the Bhagavad Gita, for example, uh, at the beginning, Arjuna has this dilemma, mm. uh, saying, like, how am I, am I going to go kill all those people? Because my family, my cousins, like, uh, uncles, like, a lot of family. How am I going to do that? So Krishna says, it's your dharma, you have to go do it. So, like, the answer for a joke is, like, where my dharma is.
1: Or the, mm, or the question for the yoga, yogi, right? Where yeah. is my dharma? What is, is my dharma? And in this case, his dharma was that. He was protector of the realm. If he didn't fight, who was going to fight? OK. Can I
3: share something that I thought might be in trouble? Not to mm-hmm. <laughs> um, So i studied a lot of neuroscience and um, things related to the mind and the body. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, one of the things that I have found as a very new yoga practitioner um, in the physical sense of Osama, um, is that having greater awareness within my body mm. has been extremely helpful because mm. trauma, which we all have, everyone has it whether we realize it or not, mm trauma stored in the body at the mm-hmm. cellular level and so the more aware you are of what you're feeling in different places, the better you'll be able to work with that. And you need to work with someone to do that, but that's a really, I think, a crucial benefit that I'm finding in my yoga practice.
1: And I think that goes straight up the alley with Yogasana, that what we're trying to do is to create cleansing, so we can get more awareness, so we can feel what is going on there and we no longer can look the other way. So we will feel the impact on ourselves when we are hurting someone else, we can, we can feel it. Good one. I'm curious yeah. from what you said, um, is there
2: like a, a general, like a universal approach to, when it comes to pain or trauma on a certain level when you're working through the outside, does an area of your body symbolize an area of an emotion or, like, is there some universal as to it mm. because of that? Like
1: if your knee hurts, it has to do with your relationship to your dad? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know yeah. a lot of them bite uh-huh. the shoulders and kind of, but I wonder if there's, like,
2: something
1: if there is, I'm not aware of it. But I do know that there's different theories and different systems that works with such metaphysical information about how exactly that we store <coughs> um, emotions and previous experience and trauma in the body. And that's everything from very new age. And then there's new science that starts to believe that they can see the impact of past generations trauma in your genes. Um, That's epigenetics. Mm. Yeah. It's a layer above.
3: Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, So if you were interested in that, I'm not the one to ask. I don't know anything about that. But there's definitely information out there. Maybe Mitchie can give you a little bit along, just some uh, research on that.
0: There's a documentary on Netflix. They did an experiment with uh, the children of Holocaust survived and like, they mm. had all these different issues because they were absorbing that as fetus, all the pain and whatever uh, in the pregnancy. But again, mm. it's all new. So, mm. yeah.
1: I think <clears throat> if you're looking for one, their, their system you're going to have a hard time. Mm.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it's the same with yoga. There are so many methods. Mm-hmm. Like, Patapa uh, he suggests this type of practice we're doing there. His uh, colleague, a he suggests something different. So, and they have different views on things. Mm-hmm. By the end of the day, they're after the eight limbs and uh, Patanjali. But how they go about it, they go about it differently. It's like American politics, you know. <laughs> how like they have the same thing. Some kind of like things should be going well for America, you know. But how Nancy Pelosi wants it and how Donald Trump wants it is kind of different opinions on that little bit, you yeah. know. So we and it's usually like that. So you're gonna have to like study a little bit, and then you're gonna have to narrow down where you think what works better with your already established worldview and then move in that direction. Shall we call it a night? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Guys, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for participating.
0: Hope you enjoyed this episode of Chat and Chai Yoga Talks from Miami Life Center. Thanks for tuning in. In our other episodes, you'll find talks on each of the limbs of Ashtanga Yoga according to Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And come visit us. We're in the heart of South Beach in Miami. Miami Life Center is dedicated to the study of yoga and the lineage of our teachers, Sri K. Bhattavi Joyce, and his grandson, Arshrat Joyce. We have Mysore classes, guided classes, pranayama, restorative classes, and we even have workshops with world-renowned teachers and community events going on all the time. Sangha, translated as community, is really important to us at Amalsi. We recognize it as a necessary pillar for walking down the spiritual path, and this podcast is a way for us to extend our sangha to all of you listening, to create a stronger and more connected community of yoga practitioners. If you're interested in learning more about us and what we do, or if we just want to stay in touch, visit our website www.MiamilifeCenter.com or follow us on Instagram at Miami Life Center. Thanks for listening to Chat and Chai, Yoga Talks from Miami Life Center. Namaste.